I was a reasonably young fella at the time, so my kids would say it was a long, long time ago. Uh, but I reckon it was probably in the early 1980s. Um, there was a time of great angst and threats and violence uh, within the shearing industry. Uh, it was all an argument over a mere 23 millimetres. That's the difference between that one and that one. The narrow comb and the wide comb. Put your hand up if you're old enough to remember the wide comb debate. Not many of you, or not many willing to admit it. Um, a lot of you are cattle folk and you who cares. Well, let me tell you, for, for the sheep cockies, this was this was big issue. Um, now, it was a fight between the AWU, the Australian Workers' Union, and somebody else. And it's really hard to know who that somebody else was that they were fighting against. Um, you know, if you had asked the union, they probably would have said, oh, we're fighting against the cockies, because they're always the bad guys, hey. And, um, and they'd say, you know, the cockies, they're trying to bring in these wide combs. That way they'll shear more sheep in a day, and therefore they'll have good justification for dropping how much they paid you per sheep to shear them. And... Um, Whereas if you ask the shearers who are actually starting to use these things, they'd say that the union was fighting against their own members, um, or more particularly against those who didn't want to be union members and, and they're really flexing their muscles about it all. Now, I don't know all about the politics. I, I don't know really who was fighting who. I, know, I suppose there'd probably be some here who do know. But what I do know is we went on our farm at Gundawindi, went through, we went through a few shearings during this whole wide comb debate. And I suppose every district had its legendary team that was said to be the last team in Queensland that would take up wide, that ever took up wide combs. And, and the contractor that we use, I heard it said of them that, um, that that team was the last team in Queensland to take up wide combs. But I've heard that said of teams here in St George since I've moved here, so I guess it's just legendary in all sorts of places. But what I remember about it was the argument and the doomsday statements about these terrible wide combs. And the shearers who used to come to our place used to say to me, we will never, ever do that to you. We, we won't ever start using those wide combs on your sheep. You, you deserve better than that. And, you know, they say you cannot properly shear a merino with a wide comb. They might be all right on those wide, on those plain-bodied big New Zealand sheep in their crossbreds, but oh, you could never shear a merino with one. They say, and they're no faster. If you're going to be tidy, it's still no faster. And they said, you know, if you're shearing a younger ewe around the rear end, you can't help but cut something off that you shouldn't be cutting off. One of the things starting with the letter T, if you're a sheep man, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but they said that these wide combs would basically be the, the death of the wool industry. And they said, it leaves half the wool on the sheep. You know, you can always see a sheep that's been shorn with wide combs leaves these big ridges on it where you can't get the wide comb down on the skin. Skin. Now, the way that they talked, you'd, you'd think that anybody who actually used these things was a child of Antichrist and would be responsible for the death of the wool industry. But as the years went by, more and more and more shearers actually started using these things. And right across Australia, it just became patently obvious that all of the scaremongering had just simply been untrue. Yeah, sure, some sheep did have ridges left on them, but let me tell you, I've seen plenty of ridges left with narrow combs too, and it's more to do with the quality of the shearer than, than with the comb itself. But our shearers, 
year after year, they'd turn up with their narrow gear and they continued to say how bad those wide combs were. Now, by then, they knew they were wrong. They knew that all of these bad things that they thought about these wide combs was wrong because so many people were using them so very successfully right across Australia. But no way were they going to admit it. But finally, one year, they all turned up for shearing and every one of them, well, it's just as well us boys were already using wide gear, otherwise Dad would have had to jump in the car and race into town to buy a pendulum before he had to grind the combs and cutters because every one of them had their wide gear. Sometimes it's really hard when you make a stand to later on admit that you were wrong. And that's what was going on there. And on some issues, when you realise that you've been on the wrong side of the fence, it's a big deal to cross over to the other side. It's a really big deal, particularly when you've stood against something firmly, to, to change your mind and to cross over to the other side. It's a big deal to swallow your pride, to admit that you were wrong and to completely change your direction. And that's what happened in the wide comb debate. And that's what happened in today's Bible reading. When Peter preached at Pentecost. Peter was addressing the Jewish religious crowd. He calls them men of Israel. Now these people had come together for this great harvest festival of Pentecost. An existing Jewish religious festival. Now something you've got to remember... This is only 50 days after Jesus was crucified. 50 days after Jesus was nailed to the cross. Peter's giving this, giving this sermon to the men of Israel. And he says to them, you know, when, when Jesus lived, he proved to you that he was from God. He did these mighty works, he did these wonders, he did these signs, all of this stuff. It was God doing it through Jesus and it all attests to this one fact that Jesus had God's stamp of approval on him. Jesus did all the sorts of things that only God can do. And, and you lot knew it. You could see it. It was there plain for you to see. The men of Israel knew it. They knew it, but they wouldn't accept it. Once they'd made their stand against Jesus, they were going to stand by that and, and stay against him. And so even though they knew it to be true, even though all of this evidence was plain for them to see, well, to prove their point, they made up lies. Jesus was a good guy. He, he was the son of God. But they made up their lies and through their lies and their scaremongering, they convinced themselves and they convinced the crowds that Jesus was actually a baddie who could under no circumstances be tolerated. And so they crucified him. Or more accurately, they weren't allowed to actually crucify him, so they go cap in hand to the, to the Roman authorities, to the Romans, and say, crucify him for us. And so Peter laid the blame right at their feet. You crucified him. You killed him by the hands of lawless men. And then from the scriptures he proved to them that it was not some tragic, unplanned twist of fate. And this is what we've got to remember. It's not just... Accidental that this all happened. It was all part of God's great plan. He says, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
It was God's plan. God knew that it was going to happen. Now, I find this absolutely incredible that God, right from the very beginning, knew that people were going to reject his son. And not just people, not just the godless, it was the ones who are his chosen people, the ones who are supposed to be his representatives here. They rejected him. And God knew it. That was all part of God's plan to die for us. It was all part of God's plan to take the punishment that we deserve so that we could be forgiven. It was all part of God's plan to be rejected so that we could be accepted, to die so that we could live. And from the scriptures, Peter also proved that it was not only Jesus' plan to die, but there's no way he's going to stay dead. From the scriptures, he proved, hey, this Jesus who you crucified, he's come back to life again. And look, here's the proof. You know, the scriptures said that Jesus would never see corruption. Now, that doesn't mean, like, we all know what corruption is when we talk about politicians, but of course, that's not the sort of corruption we're talking about. We're talking about he's never going to rot, he's not going to be worm food. And that's true. Jesus didn't rot. He never got to the stage where he stank. He rose from the dead before the rot set in, if you want to put it like that. And so Peter could lay the blame right at their feet. You killed him. You knew that he was from God and yet you killed him. And now he's risen from the dead and he sent his Holy Spirit. So there's more proof for you. And then Peter said, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now those words are really important. Jesus, was, Jesus said that he was Lord. Now that's basically tantamount to saying, hey everybody, I'm God. And they crucified him because of it. Jesus claimed that he was the Christ. And he was crucified because of it. But the resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit proved both those things that Jesus said to actually be true. Now, if Jesus was said to be Lord but isn't really, well, that doesn't need to make any difference to my life. But if Jesus, if it's actually true that Jesus is Lord, then that makes That has every ramification for my life. Everything else that I do, every decision that I make is bound up in this. That Jesus is Lord and Christ. Now when I read that accusation that that Peter makes to these guys, I just go, whoa. How would you like to be in their shoes? I mean, they killed Jesus. They killed God's son. Oops. I mean, we've all made mistakes in our life, haven't we? I've made mistakes. I've never killed Jesus, though. Whoa. Imagine that one. What was God going to do to them? What sort of doom do you think that they would be expecting to come upon them? They know in their heads, they know in their heads that they actually have done it. They know who Jesus is. Could they ever be forgiven? What do you think? Could they? Could they ever be forgiven? Too right they could. That was the whole purpose of Jesus coming. That was the whole purpose of Jesus dying was to bring forgiveness. And if those who killed Jesus can be forgiven, what sin could you have possibly ever done 
that's worse than that? Nothing. You cannot possibly have done anything that's worse than that, and neither can I. And so, there's nothing that we've done that is unforgivable. If God will forgive those who killed his son, he'll certainly forgive you. Now, I don't know if you realise it or not, but what we actually read today is a pattern for how to get right with God. It's it's how do we get right with God? How do we find forgiveness? How do we become a Christian? How can I be saved? And there's actually a bit of a process here. There's a few stages we need to go through if we're going to become a Christian. Firstly, I have to recognise my predicament. We are all sinners and the punishment for sin is death. On the day of the Lord, when Jesus comes as our judge... If I'm judged on my own merits by by what I've done for myself or by myself, well, I'm not righteous. And so the first step is we have to recognise our predicament. Sadly, most Australians have never come to this point. Most Australians feel they don't need a saviour. Having a very distorted, self-righteous view of themselves, most people think, well, actually I'm a good person. You know, I can, show, I can point a few bad people out to you and I'm not like that. I'm a good person. But that's a distorted view. It's where they feel that on their own merits they've earned their way to heaven and, and God would God be really blessed for me to go to his heaven. You know? But the truth of the matter is they're not a good person. On my own merits, I'm not a good person. God says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the truth of the matter is, without Christ, no one is righteous. Not one. The truth of the matter is, until we actually give up on this self-righteousness and start to depend on Christ for his righteousness, we're not God's friends at all. We're his enemies. So the first step is to recognise the hopeless state of our predicament. The second step is to want to do something about it. You know, sometimes we can learn something about ourselves and go, oh, that's terrible. But we don't have the, the drive to want to do something about it. Now, Peter laid out the crime before these guys. You, you, you've killed the Lord your God. That's a big cross, that one. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They realised their predicament. They realised that if things stayed the way they were, that there was no hope for them. And so they wanted to do something about it. But today I want us to consider what brought them to this state of mind. What brought them to this point where they both realised their predicament and wanted to do something about it to fix it. What did that? I'll tell you. Peter preached. Peter preached. Verse 40 says, And with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. 
Preachy Christians get a pretty bad rep these days. Have you ever noticed that? You know, know, we're always told no one likes to be preached at. No one likes to be preached to. But how will people ever know that they need to be saved unless somebody tells them? 3,000 people were saved that day because Peter was obedient to God and preached. Peter bore witness. God was doing his work and Peter bore witness. That means he told them what he had seen and known of the activity of God. What he had experienced of Jesus Christ. He bore witness to the resurrection. He bore witness to the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it says, and he continued to exhort them. And this is where a lot of us fall down. That means he didn't give up. He urged them and he urged them and he urged them, do something to save yourself. Do something. Don't don't just let it slide. He continued to exhort them. Way too often we give up way too soon. I know I do. We tell somebody a little bit about Jesus and if they don't there and then fall right on, fall on their knees and repent and give their hearts to Jesus, well, we just say, oh, well, it's obviously not the right time. We just give up and walk away. But Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. He didn't give up on them. And there's a lot of people who need that. They need someone who won't give up on them. Because we, we live in a place which, let, let's admit it, we might hear bad things about what's going on, but compared to the rest of the world, Australia's a great place to live. If you don't believe me, just ask some of our South African friends who have moved here and ask them how good Australia is. And because we've all got it so good, people, well, God's really not on their radar. And what they need, though, is for somebody to say, actually, things aren't as good as what you think they are. They need someone who is going to witness to them and continue to exhort them to save themselves. They need to be told that there's an alternative route to the route they're on. They need to be told that there is a highway that leads to destruction, and guess what? You're on it. They need to be told, but, hey, but there is good news here. There's an off-ramp on that highway and that off-ramp takes you off onto this little narrow road which is the way to life. They need to be exhorted. Now, exhortation is not something that's big on our, on what we actually think about doing, is it? Let me give you an example of exhortation in the workplace. One of the worst preventable workplace injuries that I know of is exploding 44-gallon drums. Right? Somebody wants a, wants a new bin or um, for some reason they, they want to cut the top out of a 44-gallon drum because these things are just really useful. So they straight away go and grab the oxytorch or the plasma cutter or the angle grinder and as soon as they start cutting, kaboom! And they're engulfed in an enormous fireball, nearly always severely burnt and sometimes killed. Now, there are ways to do it safely and some of us here have probably done it a lot. Um, But if you see someone who doesn't know what they're doing about to cut open a 44-gallon drum, what are you going to do about it? You're going to go up to them and say, hey, look, it's actually a bit dangerous what you're about to do. Um, You know, if you do that, 
you know, it could actually explode and, and you could end up in hospital or die. What are you going to do with that? Oh, no, she'll be right. What, what are you going to do? Are you going to say, oh, okay, and walk away? Or are you going to do something a bit more? So, well, actually, it's not okay. This is what could happen. This thing could have fuel vapours and so on in it. Even though you've taken the lid off, it could still have fuel vapours in it. And as soon as they ignite, this thing could explode and you could very well be killed. Oh, I've done it before. Look, there's a few of them I've cut out over there. Yeah, but this drum could be different. What are you going to do? Are you going to give up on them or are you going to exhort them? When it comes to occupational health and safety, there's a thing called a duty of care. You've heard of a duty of care? Yeah. A duty of care means that if you know that somebody is in a position of danger, you have a duty of care. It is your legal responsibility to do everything that you can to prevent that that accident from happening. You will urge them. You will exhort them. You will continue to tell them it's not worth the risk. Unless you know what you're doing, do not do it. Now... If it's worth arguing and exhorting and urging somebody to save themselves from the fires and exploding drum, don't you think it's worthwhile to exhort somebody to save themselves from the fires of hell? As disciples of Jesus Christ, we have a duty of care to the world. And sadly, it's a duty of care which many of us neglect. Now, it's not the most um, popular pastime in the world, I can, I can guarantee you of that. But I will tell you that those who are saved because you didn't give up on them, because you didn't stop praying for them, because you didn't stop urging them to, to, to be saved in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, because you continue to, to have the courage to preach and exhort and urge, I'll thank you. I'll thank you for it, those who are saved. The third step is to repent. Now, to repent is to realise that you're on the wrong side, that you had a wrong view of things, and to begin a new direction. Our shearers repented when they put away their narrow gear and bought themselves some wide gear. Right? That, that is a, just classic repentance. Admitting they are wrong, putting it away, taking up a new direction. That's what repentance means, to realise you're wrong and begin a new direction. And the scriptures are quite clear. There's no forgiveness without repentance. So if I know that I've done something wrong and and I confess that sin to God but have no intention at all of stopping doing it, well, that's not repentance. Repentance isn't just to confess. Repentance is to have a change of mind. Repentance is actually an action. John the Baptist used to preach, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and the crowds asked him, well, what, what then should we do? All right, so they're saying, they'd heard about this repentance. And they, well, we know that it must mean that we need to do something. That, that We've got to change something that's wrong in our lives and we have to start living with this new perspective. So, so what do we do? And John the Baptist answered them. He said, if you've got more than you need, give it to somebody who's got nothing. Now there is a firm, concrete action. And then the tax collectors also came to be baptised. They asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said, well, collect no more than what you deserve, no more than you're authorised to do. 
which, which was a new thing for them because that's why the tax collectors were hate, hated. They were given off the top and adding it into their own pockets. Then the soldiers also asked, well, what should we do? He said to them, well, don't, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. These were all concrete actions that they had to change about the way that they were living. Repentance meant a change in direction. And that's a question that we all have to be continually thinking about in our lives. What is God wanting me to repent of? Because let me tell you, repentance isn't just a one-off thing. Repentance continues to happen. As you live by day by day, getting to know God better, he's going to be continually challenging you to repent of things in your life that you didn't think were wrong. But then you'll realise, as the Holy Spirit is at work in you, you'll be going, you know, I used to think that was okay, but I'm just not so sure anymore. And God will be calling you to repent. The fourth step is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is the key to repentance. You once used to reject Jesus, but now you believe in him. That's the complete change around. You used to think that those people who followed Jesus, well, they were the crazies. You know, those, those Jesus people, they're crazy. They're, they're the weak or the deceived or the weird. But then all of a sudden you find that you are one of them. You've become one of the crazies. Is anyone here crazy about Jesus? I'm crazy about Jesus. That's what it means to repent. You used to think very little of God and you used to think very little of Jesus, but all of a sudden, he becomes everything to you. That's repentance. The fifth step is to be baptised. I do not believe that baptism is an optional extra to becoming a Christian. Peter said to them, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as we work our way through Acts, we're going to see that baptism is very much a part of the normal Christian birth process. People that say, well, what's going on? God draws them to something and they get preached to and Wow, okay, they get cut to the heart, they change, they repent, they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what's the very next thing that happens? Take them down to the river and give them a dunking. They're baptised into the Lord Jesus Christ. The sixth step is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to find as we work through, through Acts, sometimes the Holy Spirit... Well, they get filled with the Spirit before they're baptised. Usually it happens after you're baptised, but regardless of the order, as we discovered last week, and what last week's message was all about is we are living in the last days. And in the last days, God fills the disciples of Jesus Christ with his Holy Spirit. So we should desire Holy Spirit, we should expect Holy Spirit and we should certainly never be afraid of Holy Spirit. So that's how you become a Christian. You recognise your predicament, you come to the place where you want to do something about it 
Repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be baptised into the Lord Jesus Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then that's where discipleship begins. No, sorry, that's, that's where discipleship begins. That's not where it ends. Uh, living the Christian life, living the Spirit-filled life is, is very different to living the old life and that's what we're going to be looking at next week as we look at the, uh, the last paragraph of, of today's reading. But what about today? Well, for some of us, it's been a big deal to admit that we've been on the wrong side of the fence and to cross over to the right side of the fence. It's been a big deal to realise that you're on the wrong side of Jesus and you need to get to the right side of Jesus. It's a big deal to, like you've heard the messages, maybe you've come to church many, many times. Maybe the only reason you're at church today is because somebody made you come or because you felt you'd be letting somebody down if you came. You've heard the message year after year that, hey, you're in a hopeless state without God and you need him. But it's been a big deal to admit it. You know it. But you haven't admitted it. It's a big deal to cross over to Jesus. Maybe it's just recently or maybe it's over a lot of years God's been proving to you about this Christianity thing. And you've actually realised, hey, it is actually true. But you haven't let it impact you. Well, what am I going to personally let that mean for me? So you haven't accepted it. It's been too big of a deal to to repent, to believe, to be baptised and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm going to say to you today, don't put it off. Don't put it off. Don't turn away from God. You know that God's calling you to be his child. You know that God has his word for you to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus. Don't put it off any longer. Secondly, I believe God is calling us to be a people who preach. Now that doesn't mean that you'll have to get up here on a Sunday morning and, and give the sermon and it doesn't mean you all have to become you know, super evangelists like Billy Graham or, or whatever. But he does want us to be a people who are ready and willing and keen to share the word of the Lord with those in your circle of friends, with your next door neighbours, with those who you come in contact with in the community. He wants us to be a people who will urge, exhort and continue to invite people to save themselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to be a people who are prepared to ask God for his Holy Spirit to give us the power to do that because there's no way any of us can do that with our own power. Look at Peter. He didn't do that until the Holy Spirit came upon him. It was when he was empowered with the Holy Spirit that all of a sudden his mouth was opened and he preached and he exhorted and urged them to be saved. 
How can we do that? Well, for the man, I'm giving a little ad right now. We've just finished our current Bible study and we're just about to start a thing called Christianity Explored. We've just done it with, with some young fellows. And the lady, you've done it, haven't you? The ladies have already done it. And so we're not this, not this week, but next week, we're going to be starting off this Christianity Explored, which is a thing to introduce people to Christianity. This is what Christianity is about. And we've talked about it at the last men's Bible study and we're racking our brains and praying about, God, who do you want us to invite to come to Christianity Explored? And I want to extend that invitation because not everybody here is currently in a Bible study. And if there's somebody else here, I want to put the challenge out to you to find a friend, an acquaintance, someone, and invite them to come along to Christianity Explored. And not just to turn up, but for you, organise it with them, for you to go and pick them up and bring them. And um, we'll do this thing together. And even if you can't bring someone, I've always found that every time I do something like Christianity Explored or Christianity Explained or Alpha, what it does is it increases my knowledge and my ability. I pick up a few techniques of of how to share the good news of Jesus with others. Um, So even if you can't think of someone to bring, come along yourself and, um, and learn in that way.